0: Good morning. I'm glad to be here. I bring you greetings from the Point Church, uh, the Point Church Grand Rapids. Uh, the church is coming along. Uh, we're in our next phase of our building project and God is just doing great things through the apostle of the house, Apostle Andrew. We honor him and we honor his lovely wife, Angela, and we just thank God for you uh, revive church and all that God is doing through this house uh, and all that God will do and I knew about this invitation for about a month and I just really began to lean on God and say what do you have to say to revive church and the Lord said I have a challenging word for them uh, and it's always hard to bring a challenging word we always Uh, We we look for an encouraging word, but a challenging word is uh, never easy for us. Uh, My name is Nathan. I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I went into ministry at the age of 14. I'm 42 now. Um, I'm the husband of one wife, the father of two children. Uh, I was the pastor in the Methodist Church for 12 years, and the Lord began to deal with me as a part of the Methodist Church and he began to show me what his church really looks like, uh, more from a kingdom line of vision. And so in 2012, uh, our bishop wanted to move me to another city. And the Lord, says, the Lord told me, this is where you get off. Uh, and so I told the bishop, I, I did not accept the appointment to move. Uh, we had just bought a house in Grand Rapids, a lovely house. My wife was In her first year of nursing school, my daughter was starting kindergarten. So it was just a time in our lives where it just wasn't the right time to move. And so by leaving the denomination, they really had thought I had gone crazy. (laughs) Uh, They said, you know, he's choosing to leave a denomination. I was making $90,000 a year plus. I was traveling all the time. I was overweight. I was unhealthy. My marriage was unhealthy. And my wife says today that if we had not left the Methodist church, we probably would be divorced because I was always gone. I was always traveling. I was always away from my kids. And I remember leaving one day and my my daughter said to my mother, he's got to go again. And now on the back end, as I see some of my friends who are still in the Methodist church to see how they travel, I I say to them, man, y'all need to slow down because you're you're missing so much Uh, and and you're unhealthy. You're not in a healthy place. And so those next three years were really trying years for our family. I I have a doctor's degree. And so I said, oh, I'll just, I'll file unemployment. I'll look for a job. There's Cornerstone. There's Calvin. Somebody's going to hire me. There's GRCC. There's This is the Bible belt of schools, and this is, I mean, there's colleges everywhere in Grand Rapids. So I just knew that I would find a job, and I was wrong. I went to the unemployment office, and they said, well, you have no unemployment. You're a pastor. You don't pay unemployment tax. And so I didn't have any unemployment, so I had to sign up for Medicaid. I had to sign up for uh, a bridge card, and we got $678 a month for food, which was good. And and I understand why people get stuck on, on, on welfare because they do, you can, you can eat well, uh, with 670 something dollars a month, but I was unhealthy. Um, we weren't able to pay our mortgage and they came and they put a sign on our door saying your house will be auctioned off on January 27th. If we don't receive any money from you. We paid when we could, but, we, but I wasn't working. My wife was in nursing school. She was driving to Lansing, back and forth to nursing school. And so that was gas. And so I started to substitute teach in the public school system. That created some income. That created a, a, a contract job. But it wasn't until 2016 that I found a job with Farmers Insurance, which is where I work today. Uh, been there almost two years. It's a great job. I love my job. We saved our home. Uh, we, we received a loan modification from our bank. Uh, they paid all of our back mortgage in the rears of $25,000. We just have to keep our house now for five years, and then and all that goes away. We don't have to pay it back. So God is good, but even then, I mean, even before we were bailed out by the state of Michigan, I was at a place in God where if he had to take the house, he had to take the house. You know, my wife would say, well, if we lose our house, what are we going to do? We'll do what we do, you know, when that, when that comes, if that comes, but thank God it didn't come. We would get people knock on our door and they would want to buy your house because they get on the internet and nothing's, nothing's private today. Everything is out there. So everybody in the neighborhood knows that you're, you're going through foreclosure, possible foreclosure. And my neighbor across the street, she, she had nerve enough to say, you're bringing our property value down. Why not just sell your house so that our property value won't go down? And I, and I just believe and trusted in God enough to know that if God gave us the house, he'll give us the provision to keep the house. And so that's part of my story. Um, my, my story is much broader than that. I, I had major brain surgery in 1986 at the age of 10, uh, major brain tumor on my optic nerve. Uh, They said that I had the possibility of being blind, being paralyzed on my right side, uh, suffering from dwarfism because that's right at the age when puberty begins that I won't be able to have children. But all of that is not true today. Uh, We do have two children. We had our daughter by artificial insemination uh, and then Josiah just came on his own because they said once you get them to working they start to work and we're still believing God for a third child even now. And so I'm speaking that into existence as we um, continue to wait on God, because it's all in God's timing. And so I want to talk to you today. I came all the way to Hesperia uh, to ask you a question. Are you a fan or are you a follower? And so I want to challenge you with that question today. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of John, the second chapter. John chapter 2 is where we will begin for today. Uh, now that I've told you a little bit about myself, um, let us look to the Lord. Gracious God, we thank you and we praise you. We say good morning to you. We honor you and we thank you for this great day that you've blessed us with. For you saw in your cosmic creation that on this day, at this time, that we would be in this place at this hour and that we will be blessed, Lord God, with the fan that blows the air. With the light that provides the vision, and with your grace, Lord God, that it gives us uh, breath in our bodies to breathe and just allows us to sit here in these wonderful seats and just worship you in, in this place. And so we thank you. Uh, and we, as we have sung, Lord God, we, we give it all to you. We give it all to you. Uh, but Lord, we come now to wrestle with the question in our hearts are we a fan or are we a follower? And so bless me now, your servant, as I proclaim your word, hide me behind the cross that your people may see Jesus. And let our time together be sweet. Let our time together in fellowship be a time of joy, be a time of celebration, be a time of wrestling with the question, are we a fan or are we a follower? We thank you and we praise you. We ask now, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to be in this place. We ask now, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to come. For if your Holy Spirit does not show up, We just simply worship you in vain, but knowing that your Holy Spirit is here, let your grace abound and let love flow from brother to brother, from breast to breast. In Jesus' name we thank and give you praise. Amen. John chapter 2, and today we're going to look beginning at that 23rd verse. When you have it, say, I got it. If you're still looking, say, hold on, wait for me. I like technology. I know my brother John Neblin was here a few weeks ago and he said he likes the paper Bible, but I like technology. Why waste all those trees when you can just have it <laughs> in digital uh, ambiance and it's just there. So we're going to begin at John chapter 2 verse 23, uh, a story that is familiar to many of us, but a story that will challenge us as we wrestle with this question, are we a fan or a follower? And I'm going to read through John 3.16. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about humankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Verily, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Verily, truly, I tell you. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sounds, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So ends the word of God. And so to paint the picture of the text, uh, the Passover festival is going on, and the Bible says that many trust it. In other words, many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. It goes on to say that many accepted. In other words, many accepted Jesus, but Jesus had not yet accepted them. John makes it very clear in the Bible and in in his book that there is a kind of faith that does not save. And this sets the stage uh, for John's intro of our brother Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a ruler, a teacher of the Jews. Nicodemus was one who kept the law. He knew the law of God and he did his very best to abide by the law. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night either because he didn't want anybody else to know or simply because he wanted to have some of Jesus' time. And so he, Jesus looks back at Nicodemus and he says to him, in essence, your belief, your, you, you, you believe, you, you, you trust. Your trust, however, is insufficient for salvation. He says to him in John 3, 7, you must be born again and so nicodemus is devout he's passionate he's respected in town he's a law following a law-abiding citizen he's a god-fearing man but jesus says to him that your belief and your trust is not sufficient for salvation you have to be born again he prays to God, he studies God's word, he teaches God's word, he lives God's word, he lives God's word. Yet Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And so, let's go now to Matthew 7. Matthew the 7th chapter and the 22nd verse and the 23rd verse. Here in Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching. He's talking about how narrow and how wide the gate is. He's talking about the true and the false prophets. He's talking about the true and the false disciples. And there in the 22nd verse of that seventh chapter, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me you evildoers. In September of 2016, George Barna, of the president of Barna Group, who does a lot of research on churches, he released an article entitled, The State of the Church. And he found in that article that four out of five Americans identify themselves as Christians. But less than half of them are involved in church on a regular basis. He goes on to say that less than half of them believe the Bible is accurate in its fullness. And he goes even further to say that many believe that Christians and Muslims, that the God we serve, is the same God. The story goes deeper to identify those who identify themselves as born-again Christians They believe that they have made a personal commitment to Jesus. They believe that their works will help them get to that place called heaven. But how many of us have simply checked off a box? How many of us have simply repeated a sinner's prayer? How many of us have simply been told that if we pray this prayer, that if we repeat after this person, we are saved But nothing about our lives has really changed. And so I've come all the way here today to challenge you and to ask you the question, are you a fan or are you a follower? Have you simply checked off every box? Have you simply repeated after the person who led you in the sinner's prayer? But nothing in your earthly life has really shown any fruit of any change having taken place in your life. For all those years... Tom said, I sat in church thinking I knew Christ when in fact I didn't. Let me introduce you to Tom. Tom is a man who serves at the church. He, he serves on every committee. He's, he serves on the worship team. But at the age of 60, Tom came to the reality that he really did not know Jesus like he thought he did. He had a dream one night where he was visited by Jesus and Jesus visits him and he finds himself when he comes to on his knees, praying and calling out to God, inviting God to come into his life, where just 30 years earlier, Tom had visited a church where he had checked off every box, where he had walked down the aisle, where he had repeated the sinner's prayer, where he had accepted Christ, at least he thought. But he came to himself several years later, and he had to deal with the harsh reality that it wasn't the sinner's prayer that saved him, that it wasn't all the things that he did and all the ways that he served in the church that saved him, but it was a commitment to give it all to Jesus, as we sang in the song, that we're going to give it all to him. But have you really given it all to him? Or are there some things that you've held back? but we all have to come face to face with the extreme tension that exists between our sinful selves and God's holy nature. There's a pandemic problem in contemporary Christianity where many have made a decision, prayed a prayer, signed a card, got baptized, but nothing has really changed. For as the Bible says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So how can a man be born again? I'm glad you asked. Two simple words. Repent and believe. Both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, in their early ministries, they began with these words, repent and believe. And if we were to go back into the book of Ezekiel and take a look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, we would find the result of what it means to be born again For it says there in that 25th verse, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be made clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit, capital S, in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my lives. Verse 28, then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. And these are the promises of God as they go on. And so I ask you again, are you a fan or are you a follower? The word Christian appears in the Bible only three times. But the word disciple appears in the Bible more than 250 times, 269 times to be exact. And if we were to take an honest inventory of those that we see in the church today, I believe that there's three types of people or three types of Christians in our churches today. Number one, there's the casual listener. The one who's, we've caught their ear and they've heard something that they're interested in, but they're not really committed. They just want to come and hang out. And so they're a casual listener. Secondly, there's the convinced listener. They believe and they know the benefits of believing. And so they have now become convinced that this Jesus that they speak of is for real. And they are not ready to commit fully, but they're convinced that there's something special about this Jesus. And finally, number three, there is the committed lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. But today in this 21st century, We have made discipleship optional in the church today. We've made membership mandatory, but we've made discipleship optional. I don't want to be a disciple. I just want to be a Christian. Dallas Willard said it best. He says the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, meaning students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And the Lord really began to deal with me, about this the other day as he as we talk about discipleship and I came to the reality that we all should be discipled by somebody no matter how old we are in other words we never outgrow discipling we should be discipling somebody and somebody should be discipling us no matter how much we think we know no matter how long we've been reading the Bible There's something we can learn from our brother, from our sister. And so I ask you, who's discipling you? And then I challenge you, who are you discipling? And so for the remainder of time, as we wrestle with this question, and it's not something that I expect for you to answer today, but something that I just want to deposit in your heart, that as we walk the walk, as we learn to talk the talk, that we'll see what it really means to be a committed follower of Jesus. And so I want to look at a few other scriptures to see what it looks like to be fully committed. The first one is Matthew 13, 13th chapter, beginning at verse 44. You may want to write these down and look at them later. But it says there in the 13th chapter, beginning at the 44th verse, it says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Verse 47, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the funny thing about this scripture is that he didn't have to go over there and get the wicked and he didn't have to go over there and get the, get the righteous, but it says that they were all in the same lake. In other words, they were all together hanging out in the same place. In other words, in the church, there's some wicked folk and there's some righteous folk. Which one are you? I don't want to know. But we all want to get to the place where we can be called righteous in God's eye. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 16. It says, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's go a little bit further into Luke. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 23, and we're almost done. It says there, Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death. Before they see the kingdom of heaven. Journey with me down to verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. And the reality is the brother's father had not even died, but he wanted to go back and hang out with his father until he died so that he could receive his inheritance. But God says, follow me. Finally, let's look at Luke 14. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. And it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile it is thrown out. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And to really understand this whole journey, we have to go back to Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus calls his disciples. And if we were to journey back to Matthew 4, we would see all the things that they gave up. For it says, while they were fishing, he said to Peter, follow me. And he left his nets. And follow them. Then there in the boat with their father, he says to James, son of Zebedee, follow me. And he follows them. And they gave up their comfort. They left behind their careers. They left behind their possessions, their positions. They left behind their families and their friends and their safety. For there in Matthew 10, verse 22, Jesus says to them, you will be hated because of me. And even they gave up themselves, because as we just read there in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it goes on to say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And this is the kind of stuff we don't hear about on TV. We hear about prosperity. We hear about blessings. But Jesus says in his word, if you're going to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. And maybe Jesus won't ask you to give up your career. Maybe he won't ask you to give up your riches and your or give up your family. But if he does. And he may do that. Are you ready to give it all up to him? as we said in the psalm. For when we embrace Christ, we are saying in essence that we're willing to give it all up for him. I'm more convinced than ever before that the greatest need in the church is not more people, it's not more money, it's not even more resources, but the greatest need in the church today is more disciples. A people who have a radical abandonment for the glory of Christ. And when we do that, I want to look at two final scriptures to, to encourage you as you continue to be revived Church. For God has some great things in store for revived Church. For as I dealt with this whole word, Hesperia, I, I, I said, what is it about that word? And I can see things in words, and the word that came to me out of that word is the word Aspire. There's an A in there, there's an S in there, there's a P in there, there's an I in there, there's an R in there, and there's an E in there. And so I ask you, what are you aspiring to, Revive Church? What do you aspire to be? What do you aspire to become? And then as we deal with this whole thing of the fivefold, there's also an apostle in there, there's also a shepherd in there, there's also a prophet in there, there's also an instructor or a teacher in there. And there's also an evangelist in there. So you have a spire and then you have all of the fivefold in that city, Hesperia. Coincidence? Maybe. Maybe not. Let's look at Acts chapter 2 to see what the church looks like. What it's supposed to look like. Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. It says... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Does anyone have a need in the house today? If so, are you willing to sell your possessions to fill that need? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church or The Purpose Driven Life. And he says in that book that there's five things that we're supposed to do in the church. That we're supposed to worship. That we're supposed to have fellowship. That we're supposed to have discipleship. That we're supposed to do outreach or evangelism. And I can't think of the the last one, but all five of them are within this text. And then we look finally at Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians four, eleven through 16, which is Paul's instruction for Christian living to the church of Ephesus. And he says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from life from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. I'm reading the wrong thing. Let's go up a little bit further. 11. All right, here we go. So Christ gave the, the apostles... The prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Who gave them? Christ gave them. Why did he give them? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of of the fullness of Christ. So we've got some work to do, right? We have the apostle. Where's the prophet? Where's the pastor? Where's the teacher? Where's the evangelist? We're building a church or are we building a kingdom? We're building a kingdom. And so in order to be fully equipped, we have to have all of those. So... The prophet is in the house. The evangelist is in the house. The pastor is in the house. It's time for you to step up. It's time for you to take your rightful places and be the church that God is calling you to be. For everything that you need is already here, says the Lord. There's somebody here that can learn to play the guitar. There's somebody here that can learn to play the drums. There's somebody here that can lead worship. There's somebody here. Everything that you have, Everything that you need, the Lord says, you already have it. It's time to step out on faith and realize that it's always been here. It's like the lost coin that's lost but doesn't know it's lost. There's a parable about a lost coin. It's lost but it's in the house. And she did everything she could to find that coin. But you do realize that there's a lot of lost coins in the house, but they don't yet know that they're lost. And so I ask you as I close out, are you a fan or are you a follower? Let me paint a picture of what God really means by the church. And if I can have three chairs, I'll paint this picture really quickly. And then I'll make my way back to Grand Rapids, never to bother you again. But before I do that, I'm reading this book by Dr. Jonathan Welton. It's called Equipping the Equippers. And in the beginning, he shares a story that I'll read real quickly that I think paints the picture. I, I debated on whether I was going to read it, but I'm going to read it. It says The green military jeep came to a screeching halt in the mud outside a soggy tent. The general's boots splashed as he stepped from the jeep into the darkness. He entered the tent to find five officers standing around a large map stretched across the table. The officers snapped to attention. The general wasted no time. He says, tell me what is going on here, he ordered. Headquarters keeps reporting that you have a brutally high level of casualties and your units are dysfunctional. One of the weary officers exchanged glances with the men and women standing near him. He coughed and then looked back at the general and said to him, Do we have permission to speak freely, sir? Permission granted, the general answered, his face a mask of sternness. Well, sir, honestly, we were not equipped for this. We were taught to be shepherds. We can fix marriages, help raise godly children, and teach people how to live healthy Christian lives but we weren't built for frontline warfare. I don't even know what I'm doing here. I am constantly asked to do things that are beyond my training and capacity. I am shell-shocked and living on the edge of burnout. The general's expression softened. He scanned the faces of the officers standing before him. In a less harsh voice, he asked, does this represent what's happening here? They nodded sheepishly, and one said, more or less. The general clasped his hands behind his back. Where are the prophets who are meant to be in this unit to regularly bring communication from headquarters and encourage you to keep pushing forward? The officers looked at each other for a long moment. A woman finally spoke. We typically have a roving prophet visit us once a year, sometimes less. The general asked, And the teachers who are meant to bring fresh bread and cutting edge strategies for advancing the kingdom. Another officer answered, we sometimes read their books if we can find them. His voice trailed off and he stared down toward the battle map. And the evangelist said, the general, please tell me that you have some of those to rescue the captives and bring in new soldiers. Evangelists, not really. Most of our people are afraid of the darkness. We get together and sing, take offerings, listen to familiar messages and hope reinforcements will come. The general gave a resigned nod. And I'm guessing you have no apostles either. Am I right? A woman nodded. Correct, sir. You are the first we've seen in decades. The general leaned forward. Do you know what an apostle does? No, sir. Not really. Well, ultimately, I am here to serve you so that you can best serve the kingdom. To implement my advice, you will need to make some dramatic adjustments, but you will end up better for it. He looked each officer in the eye. In turn, I will bring in my team, which consists of five types of leaders. We will raise up prophets from within your unit who can communicate direction from headquarters and speak life and courage into your people i will train teachers who will feed your people and make them strong and healthy i will build evangelists who will push everyone out of their foxholes and onto the battlefield to advance the kingdom of god as the general spoke the officers stand slowly changed from weary to invigorated in unison they said yes sir the general nodded By the time I'm done here, the shepherd casualty rate will have dropped dramatically and you will have the strongest and most well-rounded soldiers available in the kingdom. It will take a major overhaul, but we can get back to the original blueprint and set up your outposts correctly. Thank you for allowing me to bring these adjustments to you. It is my pleasure to serve you. Let's begin. The officers breathed a collective sigh of relief. They had been waiting decades for new apostles to appear. The last wave of apostles had flunked out of basic training when they tried to control people rather than humbly serve them. For years, rumors had circulated that a new batch of apostles had actually been released into the battlefront. Now they had finally arrived, and together they could begin to advance the kingdom of God. And so that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to advance God's kingdom. We're supposed to be kingdom builders. And so we have these three chairs here. And this first chair is the church. This chair represents the world. And this chair represents the kingdom. And what we try to do is that we try to sit in all of them and we try to allow them to coexist. But what happens is the stuff from the world spills over into the church and the church pretty much ends up looking a lot like the world because we're trying to, we've got one foot in the church and we've got one foot in the world and we're trying to to, to do both and promiscuity spills over into the church and homosexuality spills over into the church and so much other things that are not of God spill over into the church and the kingdom is just out there by itself because we're content with learning to coexist and learning to balance church and the world. We go to work in the world, we come to church on Sundays and it's back to the world and we live out our lives trying to co-balance the two But the kingdom is being forsaken like those soldiers and there's a battle going on and everybody who's doing kingdom work is weary and ready to throw in the towel and say to hell with this and go back to trying to balance living in the church and living in the world. But this is not how God designed it. The way he designed it was for the church to be over here. And... The church and the kingdom, we're building a kingdom and we go to church on Sundays and it is our job to then go into the world, bring them into the church and then make them a part of the kingdom. They were never meant to be together, but they're meant to be separate. We're called the called out ones. We've been called out from the world. But we go into the world to do the battle to bring them to the church, and then ultimately to become a part of the kingdom. But we've become content with being members. I'm a good member of the church, but God didn't call us to be members of the church. He called us to be members of the kingdom. And so I ask you, as you take an honest inventory of where you are seated in these chairs, are you a fan or are you a follower? Let us pray.